Good morning from Washington, D.C., which continues to have the lowest COVID-19 transmission rate in the United States. We're glad you could join us this morning for our virtual roundtable, exactly 244 years to the day after the Second Continental Congress voted to declare independence from England. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm Director of Congressional Outreach here at FMC, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us this morning, as well as those of you who's helped celebrate our 50th anniversary at our virtual statesmanship celebration last week. If you missed the celebration or any of these virtual roundtables, please visit our website at www.usafmc.org to get caught up. Today, we look forward to a great discussion and we hope you'll be a part of it. At the bottom of your Zoom screen this morning, you'll see a button marked Q&A. If you have a question you'd like to ask our panel, simply press that Q&A button, type in your name and question, and if we recognize you, you'll ask it audio only to our panel. Don't worry, no video. You can, help, you can hit the Q&A button at any time during our program today. Yesterday, America awoke to a new poll from the venerable Gallup organization showing for the first time that more Americans thought greater immigration to our country was a good idea. 70% of Americans believe that immigration should either increase or stay the same, with half of those believing that increased immigration is a good idea. The poll comes only a few months after former White House Chief of Staff and former member of Congress Mick Mulvaney announced at an event in England that the United States was, quote, desperate for more people and that our nation was running out of workers needed to fuel economic growth. Mulvaney continued that the added workforce was needed legally. Immigration in our nation has been declining since 2016. Last year, fewer than 600,000 immigrants journeyed to our shores, the lowest number since the 1980s, and less than one quarter of 1% of our population. So how do we encourage the immigrants who have always defined our nation to replenish our workforce? What are the regulatory and legal hurdles present that have created a less welcoming America? And what will the impact of this reduced immigration be on our economic recovery and the companies who will power it? These are just a few of the questions we hope to answer today, and we've got a wonderful panel to do just that. Scott Fitzgerald is the managing partner of the Boston office of Fragoman Del Rey, Bernson & Lowy LLP. He's practiced law exclusively in the field of corporate immigration and nationality law for over 25 years. Scott is a board member of the American Immigration Council, the British American Business Council of New England, the Council for Emerging National Security Affairs, and he's a founding member of the Massachusetts Business Immigration Coalition. William Kerr is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. He's the unit head of entrepreneurial management, co-director of Harvard's Managing the Future of Work initiative, and the faculty chair of the Launching New Ventures program. Bill is a recipient of the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation's Prize Medal for Distinguished Research and Entrepreneurship and Harvard's Distinction in Teaching Award. Portia Wu is the Director of Workforce Policy on the Microsoft U.S. Government Affairs Team, where she focuses on federal policy regarding workforce skills and the future of work. Portia has spent her career developing and implementing policy solutions on a wide range of labor and workforce-related issues. Most recently, she served as Assistant Secretary of Employment and Training Administration at the U.S. Department of Labor. Finally, our moderator today is former Congressman Luke Messer, who served as a Republican from Indiana's 6th Congressional District from 2013 to 2019. During his tenure, Congressman Messer successfully authored and enacted legislation addressing banking, taxation, immigration, federal deregulation, foreign affairs, and education issues. Today, Congressman Messer advises companies and not-for-profit companies nationwide on federal policy and regulatory developments that impact their bottom line. We welcome Congressman Messer and our panel today. And Congressman, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Paul. Thanks to everybody that's listening in today and all those that will listen in later as well as, as this is being uh, taped for posterity uh, as a warning to the group. 
Um, I'm calling in from my in-laws home just off Douglas Lake in Tennessee today. So I think it will be interesting as we talk to our panelists uh, in today's world. We're all in different places and able to talk to you today about, I think, this important policy issue. As we're sort of highlighted in the comments that Paul just gave you, I think our conversation today is, is largely going to focus on the, the skilled visa area of the broader immigration debate. And my hopes today for this conversation is that first we, we talk a little about what immigration has meant in, in broader context for, uh, for American history, but really for America's economy. Uh, talk a little bit about the, the president's most recent executive order and the impact that's had on industry, uh, businesses, and, and the real life people that it's impacted as well. Um, and then third, hopefully before we get done here today, and it's a lot to cover in 45 minutes or so, but what's the best path forward? Why are we in this situation? What can we do to, uh, to have ourselves in, in a better policy spot moving forward. So with that, I, I thought I would open it up for a few minutes of comments to our panelists. We're gonna start with Bill Kerr, who can I think give us some context for this um, broader conversation. Thanks, Bill. Luke, it's a pleasure to join you and the rest of the panelists and also everyone that's, uh, that's uh, taking time out of their morning. I'm joining you from approximately the same chair where I've spent the last three and a half months uh, in, uh, in Boston here. I want to begin by just setting a little bit of context about why skilled immigration, employment-based immigration, why the things that we're talking about today are so important. And I'm going to use the particular lens of talking through innovation and entrepreneurship, give you a couple of figures to hold on to as we go through today's uh, uh, topic, and then also kind of set up uh, what the two panelists after me are going to be able to talk about. Like, why is this so important for Microsoft in particular and to hear the voices uh, of the companies that are involved? Immigration to the United States is about 15% of the U.S. workforce, but the rule of thumb that I give to people when they're thinking about the innovation space, be it patenting, inventors, or looking over at entrepreneurship uh, and kind of the related topics, it's about 25%. So there's a higher rate at which immigrants are contributing into these specific places. And that's been an area of just of constant growth over the last really 40 years, uh, 45 years from the 1970s uh, through to present. Uh, it's been very broad based across a lot of technology areas. Uh, and it's also had a lot of contributions from people of various countries of origin. Uh, China and India in particular have, have kind of been leading uh, the, those surges, but they're also uh, pulling from Hispanic communities in Europe and, uh, and elsewhere along the way. And we all have in our mind maybe this image of a superstar, you know, like the immigrant superstar. And uh, everyone always thinks of Elon Musk. He just sent some astronauts into space. Or you could think about uh, Portia's uh, CEO at uh, Microsoft uh, as being also foreign-born. So a lot of talent that's at that superstar level. But really, a lot of the impact comes through people that are just very well trained to do work in science and engineering related fields. Uh, and when we look at kind of their contributions, it often comes through those day in and day out uh, interactions. Uh, obviously, during this period, the U.S. has had a very special place in global talent flows uh, in the very kind of upper echelons. We're often pulling in more than, you know, a third or a half of those that are migrating around the world uh, to do this type of uh, work. And frankly, that's made other countries envious. Uh, and so they've been trying to, to nibble or to chomp at, uh, at our lead in the global talent area. And that's one that I'm, I'm going to try to think through today with you guys as to how we protect and extend uh, our role in the global talent flows. The other thing I'd like to just set up uh, as a conversation point is what, if you're less familiar with U.S. immigration policy, you might not recognize. 
which is in the, in the domains that we're talking about, there are two very important what I call gatekeepers. Uh, and most of the, the visas that were affected by the recent executive order and a lot of where our conversation today is going to revolve are around employer-sponsored visas. So an organization like Microsoft is the one that is sponsoring the worker to, uh, to come to America. And that makes it uh, very important to understand the, the goals that Microsoft wants to have in that process or, or another uh, company, and also what are some of the challenges that brings along. The other big gatekeeper in this process are universities, uh, in that uh, admissions officers all across the country are choosing the <clears throat> incoming student classes. Uh, in four years or five years' time, those classes are going to be graduating, and a lot of U.S. employers are going to want to employ those students uh, at their companies. Uh, and that, again, is going to be kind of a, a visa process. So while we often think a lot about the role of the government, we also think a lot about the individual migrant and their choices, I think one of the things we're going to try to uncover today is how universities and firms uh, play into that process as well. Great. Um, thank you, uh, Bill. Appreciate that conversation. Scott, I'd like you to go next. Uh, you're a broad practice and lengthy practice in this area. Love to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Luke. Um, so when we talked a few days back, uh, I had three uh, subjects that I wanted to cover in my, in my four minutes. And in the last 48 hours, I now have five, which I'll try to cover the other two in, in one minute. But that's how fast uh, the landscape has been changing, especially in the last three months. So the, the, the first thing that happened uh, post-COVID that was a, a big threat to the, uh, the business community was the presidential proclamation that President Trump issued on April 22nd. And the focus was to keep out immigrants. And so it, it, it's entitled the suspension of entry of immigrants who pose a risk to the United States labor market during economic recovery from COVID-19. Where it ended up was essentially uh, for 60 days, anyone applying for an immigrant visa abroad uh, would be, uh, that, that process would be suspended. In reality, it's not a whole lot of people and it's definitely not a whole lot of people coming here um, through sponsorship by a company. So most uh, people who are the beneficiaries of employment-based green card applications uh, go through that entire process in the United States. And so this was very limited. And in, and in effect, uh, was targeted at uh, folks who are being sponsored by their families. And the White House has, for a while now, been pretty pretty negative towards that whole process and the ability of U.S. citizens to bring their brothers and sisters, et cetera. So that one, we ducked. We didn't have a, a, a big uh, effect from that, and, and businesses were able to move on. Um, there were also two lawsuits that were filed against that proclamation, and they failed because the consulates were closed. The court said, I don't get it. The consulates are all closed. They've been closed since March 22nd. Where's the harm? Uh, the reason we're on the phone today is the second proclamation that came out on June 22nd. The title of that one was suspends entry of aliens who present or the risk to the U.S. labor market following COVID-19. Um, this one attacked directly the, the business uh, immigration visa categories. Uh, the first one was the H-1B visa category. That's the most prevalent one. That's the one where, where folks either go to school here in the United States or they go to school abroad and they <clears throat> take a job as a professional where the job requires their academic background. Uh, there are 85,000 petitions that are, are approved each year in this category and, and hundreds of thousands of folks coming back and forth. Uh, the second group was H-2B. Those are seasonal workers. 
that are non-agricultural. So people out on Cape Cod working in, in hotels and restaurants uh, coming in the, in the winter time, those would be uh, ski instructors, uh, et cetera, coming seasonal work uh, for nationals. The J-1 category was also affected. This is people who are interns, trainees, teachers, and au pairs. Uh, so they were all banned from entry if they hadn't yet had a visa in their possession. And I think of most import to the, to the folks on the phone, the L1 visa, the intracompany transferee visa, that uh, category suspended from entry. Um, I know that we have some folks on the phone uh, from uh, a number of um, foreign companies, Honda, Subaru, Volkswagen, Hitachi, Panasonic, Samsung. So glad you're on the phone. <laughs> because your companies are absolutely in the crosshairs here. Why? It, it boggles the mind. But yes, you right now are not allowed to transfer senior executives in to monitor your massive billion dollar investment in the United States. And if you have senior executives here on this L1 category and they leave uh, and their visa has expired, they can be here with an expired visa continuing to work, they can't come back. Uh, we're trying to get greater clarity on that, but in the world we live in, a tweet from a state mid-level State Department official is the guidance that we have that they will not be able to come back. So in a nutshell, H-1 folks who haven't got their visa yet can't come back, can't come in. Uh, uh, L-1s, J-1s, H-2Bs, uh, as Portia will, will I'm sure speak to, mo most of the H-1B workers that companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google higher are through the U.S. academic program. They're, they're students, so they're already here. So there's not a ton of uh, recruitment of, of foreign students into that category by U.S. Uh, uh, businesses. It's usually the Indian IT consulting firms. So that piece, I think we're going to be okay in the short term. Uh, but as this continues to get extended, right now it's through the end of the year. Uh, big problem. Um, the next thing that popped up, the third thing that I was going to talk about is that the uh, USCIS announced uh, last week, last Friday, that they're going to furlough uh, 13,400 of their employees, about 70%. So that's 13,400 U.S. workers who are going to lose their jobs and join the, the roles of the unemployed uh, as of August 3rd. We know this because under the WARN Act, you have to give notice. So these notices went out last Friday. Uh, and this would go effective 30 days from that date. Uh, the USCIS says they need $1.2 billion because their workload has declined so much since March that they're running out of money. Uh, you know, we're pretty close to this and we find those arguments extraordinarily specious just because they're not uh, processing naturalization applications, swearing people in, they're not uh, taking people's biometrics and they're certainly not letting in any refugees. Um, that doesn't mean that the fees that are paid to support those activities, they're paid. Just because you can't get sworn in didn't mean, doesn't mean you didn't pay for your naturalization application. So we have uh, uh, politely asked uh, Congress uh, in their efforts to, to look into this, to look into this, because we believe that those numbers are questionable. Uh, the, the next thing that happened on, uh, on Friday, Friday is always a big day in immigration. Usually after about 530, the announcements pop out. Uh, executive order on modernizing and reforming the assessment and hiring of federal job candidates. Uh, the statement, a degree-based hiring is especially likely to exclude qualified candidates for jobs relating to emerging technology. What does this say? You don't need a college degree to work in the IT field if you work for the government. They've tried this before. They issued a memo back in 2017 saying that a computer programmer is not a professional position. A bunch of court cases that were filed. 
Um, it's, 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 it's a great initiative, in my opinion. We need to train people to do this work as opposed to having to bring in all this talent from abroad. But you can't tell an employer that, that a person doesn't need a certain background to do a job. You can't just mandate that. The, the market mandates it. The academic community mandates it. The professional organizations mandate it. So I think this is, this is a, uh, just another example of, of an effort uh, to undermine the H-1B category. Finally, the last thing yesterday, uh, the regulatory agenda for the uh, spring 2020 was announced on immigration. All the stuff that we're really worried about, tightening of the H-1B program, termination of H-4 EAD, those are the spouses of H-1B. There's 110, 120,000 folks who are working here on H-4 visa. 90,000 of them are women from India. And under this, you know, under this proposal, they will all lose their work authorization. Um, it, it appears that that's going to be put off until the fall. And then uh, uh, for Bill and for, for Portia, uh, the revision of F1 practical training rules. What does that mean? Are they going to get rid of the ability of a, of a student, a foreign student, to remain in the United States and work? It looks like they're going to put that off until October. Great news. As soon as I saw that, I reached out to our, our team in Washington and said, great news. And they said, no. Uh, it's much more likely that there will be something called interim final regulations issued in the next 30 days, could be covering all three of these, and those will be effective upon issuance, and they will be extremely onerous. So that's the next thing that we're keeping our eye on and may, may require another one of these uh, video conferences. So I think I went over, but just a little. A lot to cover, um, Scott. Thank you. <clears throat> next up, I'd, you. I'd like to um, have Portia talk and, and fortunately from your leadership role at Microsoft obviously you can talk specifically the impact at Microsoft but also as Microsoft is emblematic of a whole industry of folks that are facing many of the same challenges Portia. Thanks. Thanks, Congressman, and uh, great to be here today. Hope everyone is well. So, you know, uh, stepping back for a moment, we I know we want to talk about the executive order that has just come out, but for a company like Microsoft, um, immigration has long been an important part of our talent strategy, and we have to recognize, and we, we're all a bit frustrated with the fact that we have an immigration policy and numbers and levels that were basically set in 1990 before most people, pretty much anybody had internet, for example, in their home. Uh, the whole, you know, fourth industrial technology revolution has happened since then, but our immigration system is still stuck in a sort of a non-global, non-connected economy mindset. And so that's really tough. Uh, it does mean uh, we have long advocated for reforms. We believe we need to, to grow the pie. That'll help grow our economy. Uh, we recognize that a strength of the United States is our ability to attract people because they want to come live and participate in our democracy. And that has enabled us historically to get a lot of great talent that has put us at the forefront of technology innovation. Frankly, we're really worried about losing that edge here in the U.S. Um, to speak specifically to some of the recent actions, I think for Microsoft, we're very concerned both about impacts to green cards, permanent immigration visas, as well as short-term or temporary um, visas like the H-1B for higher skilled individuals, like the L-1 for managers. And I think we recognize um, these two things aren't separate, right? Because often the H-1B or L-1 can be a pipeline to something more permanent, and that's just the way our system is set up. Um, we're very concerned um, about the impacts. And the, the thing that I think is, is missing is a lot of the rhetoric around the most recent order says, 
this is only new visas, don't worry. We're doing it because of negative impacts on the economy. We think US workers should get those jobs. I think something people don't realize is actually the way the order is drafted, it impacts hundreds, at least for Microsoft, of current employees, people who are already on our payroll, already have a job, and it's doing it, in, impacting them in a couple major ways. One, as uh, Scott just referenced, uh, that the L1 issue, managers who we were in process of bringing here to the United States, saying, you have an expertise, you already work for us, we want to grow our business here in the US, focus more on that, cloud computing, connectivity, all this critical infrastructure work to keep our economy going during a kind of maybe shut down, half shut down, reopening period. We really need those tech folks more than ever. We have hundreds of people that we were trying to bring in to help do that. Um, they're in process, but if you didn't have the actual stamp in your passport yet, because the consulate's been closed for the last couple of months, you now can't come in. So, you know, people have sold their homes, they've already bought homes here, they've already made all these arrangements, but now they can't come in. Another huge impact for us is, um, again, because of the technical way the order is drafted, if you already had an underlying visa, like an H-1B visa, say to work here for three years as an engineer, and we have people who've been on these visas for 5, 10, 15 years because other parts of the system are so backlogged, they're waiting for a permanent uh, green card, um, and you happened to be outside the country um, on the wrong week, um, you can't get back in. And uh, I will say we have uh, dozens and dozens of employees at Microsoft alone where one spouse was here working, another maybe went home, a parent was dying or sick because of COVID, um, and now they can't come back. And they, they've already been separated for several months because of the consulate and, and border closures. Now they're being told you're not going to be able to come home and see your family, your kids for the rest of the year. Uh, and that is a, it's a huge impact and causing a, a huge amount of anxiety for our employees. And then to the point Scott said, um, if you're a manager, not only in Ellen, but also on H-1B, you now can't leave the country. So we can't have any of those employees travel for business. If they have a family emergency, if they leave, they have to understand they cannot come back in. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a huge problem for us in terms of retaining our current employees and the morale there and the impacts for them and our ability to manage our business and, and some of the workflows uh, to continue to grow our business here in the United States. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Portia. And I appreciate your conversation there at the end about the real world impact of this, right? That there are uh, families, individuals, folks that maybe have worked here for a very long time, uh, sometimes 10, 15 years, who now are, are stuck overseas often with kids that may be U.S. citizens, even if they're not a U.S. citizen, right, because their kids were born while they were here. So I appreciate that conversation. You said something, though, I'm, that I, I wanted to sort of highlight and then would ask maybe Scott or, or um, Bill to, to build on after your comments. You know, at, at one level, the idea that these jobs should go to Americans is difficult to argue with, right, in the sense that We'd like Americans to have jobs, and 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 we want to make sure folks um, get them. But you know, I know for businesses like yours, just from my conversations in Congress, we have a shortage of the people we need to do many of these jobs. Could you just talk a little about you know um, why these are important, and, and and how Microsoft might function if um, if we really were in a situation where this policy that's been you know issued for the next couple months were to become a much longer term policy. Sorry.
jump in there. Um, you're absolutely right. You know, when, when we recruit as a company, we're overwhelmingly re recruiting. We recruit around the world, of course, because we're a global company, but we're US-based and most of our operations are here. And we go to a university and we look, uh, for us, we're looking at a lot of masters and PhD programs in computer science, data science, material science, you know, very advanced fields. And we're just in a place in the US right now where the overwhelming majority of those graduates even here in U.S. degree programs are uh, four nationals by birth. And so we're looking for the best talent. We're not, the first question out of our mouth is, you know, what's your nationality? In fact, there are federal laws prohibiting uh, people from national origin discrimination. So, um, you know, we're, we, we ask people what skills they have. We look at that talent and then we say, okay, well, you know, we'd like you to come aboard. If you need a visa, uh, we'll support you and help you get that. So um, we absolutely agree that there has to be more investment in, in US talent pipelines. We actually, Microsoft is long champion saying, we're happy to pay higher fees. Like we, we think that, you know, we understand um, US workers should have, have that shot. And uh, we think by paying more fees and investing that money in tra training US workers and students, we can help build that pipeline. But the fact of the matter is we need the talent today and we're being we're worried about being outcompeted by companies, um, you know, in, in China and India and Europe and elsewhere. So we need the talent today. Um, we are concerned that if these, you know, if, if measures like this, like some of the regulations that are being proposed that make it extremely difficult for us to recruit and retain high skill talent in the U.S., um, you know, we're, we're worried about the competitive effect, not, not just for us, but for all kinds of U.S. companies. And I think, you know, one thing that we know, Microsoft is an enterprise-based company, we serve lots of Fortune 500 and small and medium-sized businesses. Something we hear all the time is, um, uh, you know, every company is an IT company now, right? IT is actually absolutely critical to manufacturing, to healthcare, to education, and everyone, retail, everyone needs those professionals as a key part of their workforce here. And so I think we have to understand it, it really has effects across our economy. And, and Scott, I know from a prior conversation with you, you mentioned to me the, the services like your organization and organizations like yours provide, they're not inexpensive, right? People are making major investments here. Um, maybe you could respond, you know, elaborate a little bit on, on the importance of or, or the, the challenges we have and the, and the need for the current immigration system. Absolutely. So, so a couple of things. One, as, as I mentioned, uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense for any company to to pay our modest and very competitive legal fees and the onerous uh, uh, filing fees that the government throws out. It doesn't make any sense. And then wait, you know, four or five months to hire somebody unless you have to. Uh, we know that 60 to 70 percent of uh, graduate students in computer information systems are foreign students, as, as Portia alluded to. That there are certain groups that would say that those students are taking STEM seats away from U.S. students. I, I find that hard to believe. You know, I think that if, if a U.S. student uh, has a reasonable academic background at the high school level and is interested in studying computer information systems, I, I'm really confident that can, that can happen. It's a, it's a desire. We need to find a way to get kids to want to do this. I give presentations all the time. And, and when we're in person, you can ask how many of your children are studying, uh, you know, in the STEM field. And, and it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. So what do we do? I, Bill, I started reading your book. Um, there's, you know, the solution here 
is to is to find, put a program in place that gives these people the skills they need to do that. And maybe they don't take four humanities classes and a language and join a sorority and play intramural volleyball. You know, maybe that's maybe that's a path. And that India does that to some extent, but it's a BCom and it takes three years, not four. But there's there's that's that's the long term solution. In the short term, that's what we do. And Porsche is right. There's so much demand. And, and we represent so many companies, but it doesn't matter what they do. It does, they could be a bank, they could be in uh, uh, retail. We just do their tech. At the end of the day, 90% of what we do is help people in the STEM fields uh, trans, you know, immigrate, mostly from India and China, uh, to work in the United States and you know, everywhere around the world. That's, that's what we do. So until that need goes away, this need exists. And maybe I can jump in and, and offer some ideas also about this competitiveness aspect that you described with the companies you're working for and that Porsche brought out with, uh, with Microsoft. Uh, one of the things that we've conducted uh, through uh, this last year is a survey of a lot of HBS alumni and then also members of the general public about skill migration and its impact for their firms and, uh, and so forth. And the numbers there about the importance of this are striking uh, in the sense that of those that, um, that are uh, subject to skill migration kind of um, uh, industries and cycles and their companies and so forth, 68% of them are, are saying, you know, these visas are important. And if we're denied access, that's going to hurt our competitiveness as a company versus 20% that disagreed with that statement. And we also think about us as like a choice that companies are making around the world for the things that they list the very, very top that are important to them about what makes the U.S. special are innovation, entrepreneurship, universities, and these sort of clusters, these places where they can really get access to the frontier technologies uh, and kind of ways of doing business. And all of those things are potentially impacted uh, in severe ways by a lot of the current um, challenges that are coming towards skill migration. So this is just very important for the U.S. competitiveness uh, space. And it's one that's not at odds with improving the things that we're weak at, such as like our K through 12 education system. Uh, that's what makes the U.S. more attractive for migrants in the long run as well, because their kids are going to be going through that system. But we need to think about how to solve both today's challenges and, and be competitive today and also build for that, that future. To build a little bit um, on something you said there, Bill, and, and Portia mentioned it in her comments, Scott, as well. Um, you know, in today's world, you know, we, it's, we live in a global economy. The idea that we can drop our bridges and other countries won't respond to that. You know, we as a nation are competing with others. So maybe starting with you, Bill, and then, and then open it up to others. Could you talk a little bit about what, what happens in a world where we become a difficult place for skilled labor to enter? What will other nations do or what are other nations already doing to try to become the Silicon Valley of the next century? Sure, I'll give, uh, I think, two answers to that. One, very immediate. You could look at many of the headlines in Canada over the last two weeks, and it's like, thank you very much. You know, like, we're, th this is a wonderful opportunity for us to start taking some of the talent that uh, America is, is turning away. And this is not just about access to visas. It's even things like the amount of time it takes us to process a visa. If you come the wrong cycle into the H-1B, subject to winning, you could still be 12 months before you can start work. Whereas in Canada right now, 
parts of their global talent stream, you can be up and working in under four weeks. So there, there, there's a lot of ways that they're trying to become more attractive in that space. And the other thing I think that's helpful to think through the decisions here is not just about the policy like rules in the book, but also the level of comfort and certainty that people have. And I think of skill migration, either for innovation work or if you're coming here as a student, as being an investment. It's one where you're saying, I want to be in the United States. I'm coming to a U.S. school. I'm going to be here for the long run. I want access to those labor markets. And the one thing we know that kills investment choices, be it choosing to marry somebody or be it buying a home or opening up a chemical plant, the one thing that will kill investment faster than anything else is uncertainty. Uh, and we have uncertainty throughout the whole system as to what is America going to stand for? How much can I believe that the policies that are in place right now, if I'm an incoming student, will be there for me in four years time when I want to get access to an H-1B or when I want to, uh, to graduate? We have one historical event that, we, that we've, a lot of academics have studied where uh, in times past, the H-1B was at 65,000, but in the early 2000s, it actually got up to 195,000 visas per year. Uh, and then due to sunset clauses in that legislation, in 2004, it went from 195,000 back to 65,000. So it's a dramatic uh, reduction in visa access. And interestingly, some countries were suddenly constrained by that program. Students from those countries couldn't be guaranteed access to visas, while, while others were not. And so the, the, the nerdy economists compared the treatment and control groups there. And what was staggering about that was that among those that were now constrained, we got 10% fewer undergraduate enrollments uh, in, after the, the cap reverted down. And the most affected groups were the best students. So on average, the SAT scores that were coming from those countries declined by about 2%. And so you're looking at people choosing not to come here in anticipation in four to five years time, it could be harder for them to get a visa. Uh, that's the university kind of pipeline and talent to get to the Microsofts, and the others that are gonna be waiting at graduation uh, doorstep. And that level of uncertainty is very, very small compared to what we're dealing with right now, which is one of the big challenges um, that the US is facing in this being attractive to the people so that they want to come here and work at our companies and also go to our schools. Could I, could I add something to that? Actually, the, the issue about spousal uh, work authorization, one of the regulations that Scott mentioned is on the chopping block. That's a huge impact for us because, you know, we've surveyed our own employees. You look at uh, uh, folks like, you know, software engineers at, at Microsoft, their spouses are overwhelmingly also highly educated themselves, many of them with degrees, advanced degrees in computer science, finance, you know, in-demand fields in the U.S., um, we have a regulation in place now that says if you are a spouse and you are waiting in line for a green card or permanent visa, but your country is backlogged because you have a gigantic population country as opposed to a small population country, and we only give the same number of green cards by country. So if you're like India, you're out of luck, but if you're Liechtenstein, you're super happy. Um, but, you know, those spouses are saying, wait, wait a second. You're telling me now that, you know, I got this degree, advanced degree in computer science. Maybe I come from a place where it's actually even particularly challenging for women to get these advanced degrees. We know it often is in, in STEM fields. And now I'm going to have to come to a country with you and I won't be able to work for 10 or 15 years and use the skills that I worked so hard to get. Um, that's really tough, uh, a tough sell, and especially, you know, uh, in, in a modern economy where, where both spouses have a lot of talents and a lot to contribute, I think it's a real loss. 
uh, for the United States if we can't recruit and, and retain um, uh, both of those family members. And they, like, uh, like others have said, you know, these are folks with a lot of choices. Uh, they will go elsewhere. Many of them choose to come to the United States because they're also attracted to sort of our, our democracy and our freedoms and the dialogue, right? They're looking for that for their family. They want that future for their family. I definitely, one of our engineers, I remember him saying, look, his daughter's about to age out. They've been waiting here for a green card for 15 years, uh, you know, another part of the broken system. And he said, look, she, um, she wants to be a Marine and she's been training like with our local police force, like doing law enforcement exercises. He said, you know, this is not something she never could have done in India. And frankly, my parents don't know what the heck we're doing, but you know, we're here in the United States. This is her dream. I want her to pursue this dream, right? That's why we came here. So my kids could have the freedom to do and pursue their passions. And I feel like um, it's unfortunate that uh, we have a system that not, wasn't working that well to begin with, and now with a lot of these steps, it'll make it very difficult uh, for companies like us to recruit talent, but also I feel like our country and our economy is, is missing out. Just to add one very quick point, I had a conversation with uh, one of my partners in, in our London office, and we, we have offices in, I think it's 25 countries, and we do work in about over 175 countries. And he had reached out to say, hey, you know, the consulates in Europe are opening. And they're opening not only to other European countries, but they're opening to China. And so we, we, we think there's going to be an opportunity to park people in Europe who can't come to the United States. Um, and we're going to reach out to the firm to start talking about this. So, you know, the, the, our country's inability to get our hands around the COVID situation, it's going to become very stark when we can't go to certain places that other folks can. Um, and, and, and that's going to be a real advantage, I think, to some of these other countries not only because now they can get people in, but their immigration systems are much more liberal than ours. Thank you, Scott. First, I just want to make a quick reminder. Today is interactive, and we'd love to hear from our audience. If you have a question, just move the mouse to the bottom of the Zoom screen, click the question and answer button, enter your um, name and question, and, and we'll try to fit in the questions that we can. Um, I do want to say one thing as a former member here that not only to the panelists, but to other people listening, I think it's important to remember as we have this debate, because golly, your, your comments are all so compelling. These are real life stories. Um, but it is important to remember that the way our system of, of our republic, our, our democratic system is set up, is our politicians tend to be more thermometer than thermostats, right? They tend to more reflect the temperature of the broader country than then somehow be changing that temperature. I do think it's encouraging. I know at the beginning of our panel, Bill mentioned some some studies that attitudes towards immigration may be changing in part, I think, as as we've sort of called the question here and people are, you know, often working in a situation with somebody who's going through the challenges that Portia um, described. But I just want to say to the three of you and everybody else listening and every leader I can never listen to, in our system of government, if we want the right policies to happen, we got to put an ROI on advocacy. And we got to be willing to talk not only, not only to our opinion leaders, but to our friends and neighbors. You know, how many times has somebody said something to you at church about immigration and you just politely change the topic because it's uncomfortable, right? As opposed to just every day making the point that not only is American immigration, we know that story, but that this is essential and one of America's real competitive advantages is that we have historically handled these issues better than other countries. And if we stop doing that, 
that's one step towards being a place where others have advantages over us. And, and remember, you know, the very kind of symbol of our conversation today, four people connected by computer and the ether internet, uh, talking to the world, that means workers can work anywhere today compared to where they were before. They don't have to be in America. So uh, I, think, I, I'm, I think it's very compelling conversation, but I think we all need to remember that we gotta persuade our friends and neighbors if we wanna see the right policies uh, happen, happen um, moving forward. Um, I, I would love to talk a little bit here. I mean, it doesn't have to be the final thing we talk about, but talk a little bit here about paths forward. I mean, we know we're in a time of real challenge. I think there's efforts that can be made to try to persuade better policy in, in the near term months. But, you know, and I, I guess I'll frame this policies in two areas. I know, Bill, you've written some, you know, written a book about this and, and it's been a, a career on the topics. What can we do to get Americans better prepared for these jobs? And what can we do to, um, bring common sense to this system, this immigration system that's very important in bringing compelling um, and, and, and qualified talent to our country to make the economy work. Start with Yeah, let, let me try to jump on that and I'll be, uh, I'll be brief and get the other panelists in here because I know we're getting up close to the, uh, to the time, uh, time constraint. Um, I, Luke, I very much agree with one thing you were saying there, which is I can give economic statistics all day long. It'll bore you to death. Uh, but at the end of the day, immigration is a political choice that countries are making. And I think one of the things that we need to do a better job of is, is sharing this information. And what I regret about the current situation and the current kind of crisis is that this is a moment where we should have been trying to make the immigration system stronger. I think Scott, Portia, you, myself, everyone will agree that we've got a lot of challenges with what we're doing. Uh, and there could be, we could use this as an opportunity to make the, the system better rather than uh, detract from it. So I can't go into all the specifics here, but one of the things that I try to prioritize is in the, in the employment-based migration world in particular, how could we make better use of the visas that we have in place? So you and I may not be able to come to an agreement about should we be increasing or decreasing, but how can we make that conversation at church the easiest conversation in the world to have? Uh, and then the more that we got sort of the political kind of will behind that, then we'll be able to push it forward. And I think what I'm encouraged to that is when we've run our own opinion polls and when we pull from others, this isn't a Republican versus Democrat strict issue. There's people that can champion employment-based skill, like this is on both sides. Uh, and so I think that where if we can get the right kind of muscle behind that, that would be, that would be great towards the future. We've got a lot of challenges to solve. Uh, the student, the school to work transition and the use of the OPT program because there's not enough H1Bs like that. There's a lot of kind of moving parts that one has to nail down, but I'd start by trying to figure out how can we make the best use of what we've already allocated to this and then get some quick wins there and then be able to, to move to some of the harder questions. Go ahead, Portia. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. Um, thank you. You know, I, I think absolutely advocacy is a piece here, and I'll I'll step back for a second because I, I liked your comment, uh, Congressman, about the thermometer, not the thermostat. And and I was a congressional staffer when we tried uh, uh, in the Senate when we tried to get comprehensive immigration reform done in 2006, 2017. I was in the Obama administration. We tried in 2013. And it's not an accident that, that, that those efforts failed uh, because there was a lot of anxiety by elected members of Congress that um, 
about what this would say. But I, I think the problem is we've gotten into a dynamic now where it's sort of an us versus them. And I think that's only going to hurt the United States in the end and, and doesn't recognize the contributions of immigrants. At the same time as companies, we have to understand that anger and fear is coming from a, a real place. And actually, my own background is I used to represent labor unions and laid off workers. So I represented, you know, hundreds, thousands of fac laid off factory workers, steel workers, restaurant employees, like folks who are feeling the impact of an unequal economy every day. And I think at this moment in our society, we also are having a really important conversation about racial justice and inequity. I think as corporate America, we have to take those issues on head on. I personally don't believe that that inequity is because of immigration, but it is because of a lot of things that are systemic in our society. And that anger is coming out in a sort of, you know, many ways, but one of the ways is fear and a desire to restrict immigration. And we think that's going to hurt all of us in the long term. We'll be shrinking our own pie and that will hurt everyone. Um, just in terms of advocacy, I think this is an important time, and I think companies have to participate in that broader dialogue on having a more equal, just society and show we're willing to do things, willing to invest in broadband access, in, in schools, you know, while sh the schools shut down, think about how this is going to exacerbate the digital skills gap we were already seeing in a terrible way across America. So we really have to band together to make those investments. At the same time, I think there's very specific advocacy around these actions that, that corporate America can, tr can try to take, explain to the administration and, and those on the Hill, look, these are the impacts for our company. The rhetoric may sound good at the top, but honestly, the impacts themselves are really problematic. And I see there's a, a question in the chat. Um, you know, like exactly telling the story of, you know, we have these, you know, qualified managers who are coming over here to take this big project on, think it'll help grow business here in the United States. We can't do it now. And this is somebody who knows our business already is, is skilled and ready to go. You, you're not going to sort of pluck that person anew off a tree somewhere else. It's just not going to happen. So I do think it's yeah. an important moment for advocacy with sensitivity to understanding um, a lot of the other concerns, legitimate concerns people have. Agree. Thank you, Portia. And Scott, I, I, I want to get a question to you. I think it's going to yep. come to you directly. Um, Brian McGrath has a question about L1 visas. So Brian, if you could unmute your microphone and go ahead um, with your question. Thank you, Scott. Just a real uh, simple question. You know, we, we're concerned, you know, we have a lot of employees from, from uh, other countries that are waiting on their visas to come to the United States. And there's been little in the way of explanation of what to expect and, uh, you know, how, how, what sort of things we can be doing. Uh, Portia mentioned a second ago advocacy, which I think is a great suggestion, but could you talk a little bit more about what we can expect over the next six months, say, and, and what, what sort of proactive steps companies might be taking? Well, the, the big problem now, you know, uh, yesterday or the day before the governor of Massachusetts opened up uh, the borders essentially to neighboring states. So you don't have to quarantine in place anymore if you're from a, from a New England state. Um, it's very reflective of the problem, right? The U.S. consulates and embassies are not going to open until the United States gets its hands around the COVID-19 problem. It's not going to happen. There's enormous pressure on the State Department right now to open up the embassies and consulates so the foreign students can pick up their visas and start fall term. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, right now, consular appointments in India for uh, F1, I'm sorry, for H1 and L1 are in October uh, and sometimes in November, and they're just going to get pushed off. So, so right now, it's not a 
policy issue. It, it, it's, a, it's a legitimately a legitimate policy problem. We can't open up because we can't risk all these folks coming in. Um, once that gets solved, hopefully in the next 30 or 60 days, we get to a place where, like Europe, we can start to open up our embassies and consulates. That's when these presidential proclamations become a real problem, and, and especially on the L1, because those people are ready to roll. And so, so that's where advocacy, where and there, there are lawsuits coming and there are plenty of opportunities to, for companies to fund those lawsuits. They don't have to be plaintiffs, but, they, but there's funding that's needed to sue the government to say, you can't just decide that we can't send our senior executives in. There's no uh, basis in law for that. So beyond the, 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 the situation that's somewhat out of our control, beyond a personal level of solving the COVID problem in the United States, which facilitates the opening of the consulates, which then will bring this policy issue to a head. Um, and to the extent that companies can get, you know, public or privately back public statements against this, yeah, that's critical. So, uh, I, I, does everybody have a couple more minutes? I don't want to keep every. I don't want to keep anybody that's on the panel on the phone if 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 we need to. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, we want, we're going on here. I, we just may fill another five or ten minutes, and and then we'll be done by the hour. But um, so I think it's probably worth exploring. This is obviously a, an interesting political time. We're in the midst of a presidential campaign year. Um, maybe the panelists could talk a little bit about what they think might happen if you have a if, if you had a change in administrations i guess i do want to frame that by saying this you're hard pressed right now in congress or the senate to find a politician who's making a career of vocally talking about the importance of bringing high-skilled labor to america and championing immigration but if we're honest with ourselves this is as, as bill mentioned the opposition to this is not partisan uh, but i do think it's you know it's it's far broader than that but anyway, I'd love to kind of hear thoughts on uh, what you might think um, with a change in, in the presidency might bring moving forward. And then I think we'll we'll have one one last round of, of uh, question I'll pose to you all. We, we can start. I guess it's not fair to Portia opened up. Go ahead, Portia. You can. Oh, OK. Um, sure. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I can't I can't speculate on what a new administration might do, but I I can say a couple of things. You know, absolutely. I. I Immigration, as Bill mentioned, tends to go up and down with the economy. When the economy is bad, the numbers go down. When the economy is good, the numbers go up, and that's where political pressure starts to, to build to make reforms and improvements and, and catch us up. I, I do think that, the, you know, um, obviously there, there are a number of moving vectors here. Uh, DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, you know, individuals who were brought here when they were young and grew up here, many of whom didn't even know they were undocumented. You know, we'll see what this administration does. Uh, Microsoft has been involved in litigation that went to the Supreme Court to try to keep that program in place. I, I definitely think that's something that a different administration might have a different view about. And I think there's strong bipartisan support to try to fix that situation. I do think also, you know, from a business perspective, even if there isn't appetite, because big changes need to go through Congress, it's not just about administration. But I think a new administration maybe could have some more um, less restrictive views, at least maintain the status quo or use its administrative powers, we would hope they would use in a way to be a little more expansive, understand par other parts of the system are broken and need legislation. So at least use it to sort of 
patch up the holes in the in the bursting dam, which is basically what's developed over the years. I think we would hope they would at least do that so we can find a way forward to think about immigration reform in the longer term. But from a business perspective, what we really need is, is certainty. I think what's so difficult about this is when the rules change suddenly, when they change suddenly by order with, with no notice. And so, you know, you don't even have time, and especially in a pandemic, when even if you had a week's notice, you couldn't get your person back if, if you wanted to because the consulates are closed and the, the borders are not open. I think that's what's really hard. Uh, for us, and you know, Microsoft's a big company, so we can we can find ways. Often, but for smaller companies or more medium-sized businesses, it's just very difficult. So I would say, you know, more certainty, more participation in the process. So we could give sort of our feedback and give our data, and and hope that people understand how this is impacting companies. That's what I'd hope for uh, from a different administration. You know, who knows what'll happen in November, though. Maybe I can follow that and continue on, on the certainty theme. And this also goes beyond just one administration and whether Biden or Trump is, uh, uh, is elected in November, which is what, what I fear for the future, uh, given, frankly, how polarized we are right now and how this can be one of those topics that becomes the, the, you know, the third rail to do and, and work on in good times and then can, can be very divisive uh, in the bad times. Is I fear for a future where it's not even just about the certainty of what's going to happen over next month, but in three years time, are we going to be at a very tight election, which could go either way and involve a substantially different perspective on migration uh, in America and its role for business um, if a Republican gets elected or a Democrat gets elected. And then we go another four years and then there's another kind of, you know, on the knife edge as to which way that's going to go. Okay. That, especially when we're talking about the choices by Microsoft as to where to open up facilities or again, go back to the choices by students as to where they want to start building their careers. That that time horizon sits in, in, in that uncertainty period. And um, that's one thing I really worry about. And I would, you know, I'd love to imagine a future where we at least got a bit more of a kind of a bipartisan support about this is kind of the baseline that we're going to be working with. And this is not going to be one that we will so quickly veer in one direction or the other compared to um, the, what, what people need in order to have confidence in the choices that they're making. So, so I would only add, Luke, I think your point previously about the conversation in church, that's, that's the key, right? It shouldn't matter who the next administration is. And, and frankly, you know, President Obama started this mess when he used his pen with DACA, right? He set the precedent and now, you know, President Trump uses pen all the time. Congress needs to fix this problem. It is the third rail. It's been going on for the last 30 years that I've been doing this stuff. And, and, it, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, don't tell anybody because I'm inside the Boston Beltway, but I'm a registered Republican. Uh, and, and my mother was a G.W. Bush, I know, a H.W. Uh, Bush delegate for the state of Michigan many, many years ago. I grew up in the sticks. I get it. I go home. We're, we're Wisconsinites now. And I go home to our family reunion and half of them look at me cross-eyed. But I try to have the conversation. That, that's, the, that's the thing. I think what you know, Bill's work is in, in looking at how can we train these people to do these jobs so it's not so controversial that we bring in 0.75% of workers to the economy from abroad, right? The, 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 the noise is way, way, way bigger than the problem. So somehow we got to solve that problem. And if we can make it supplemental to the solution to the problem, then Congress can do what they need to do. Because until they do it, 
Bill's spot on. We're just going to keep flipping and flopping. Um, and, and this is always going to be a problem. And, and it, it is absolutely something that needs to get solved. Or, or my partner in London is spot on. And we will. Businesses will start to move stuff uh, because they can do so much stuff remotely. And, um, and it'll be a real problem for the U.S. and for our university system, et cetera. Well, thank you there. I tell you, with that, I'm, I'm going to, I think, leave it there. Um, I was going to try to squeeze in a, a speed round, but probably can't get that done before the top of the hour. So I'll just leave you with this thought. And first, I want to thank our panelists for this conversation. It's certainly been enlightening to me. Hope it's enlightening for those that were able to participate online. Second, I, I guess I just want to leave us with maybe the point I made 10, 15 minutes ago, which is, this is important for America's businesses. It's important for America. If you want to put America first, we have to have a good common sense immigration system that brings talent to our country. But I would just say to everybody on this call, let's own our own responsibility and where we are in this current debate. And let's push hard. Not only, because Portia mentioned, you have two challenges here that have been brought to a head. One is the near-term challenge of dealing with these orders and what we're going to do to make sure and provide advocacy so that we understand the full impact and they can at least be refined, if not changed. But then beyond that, we've got to persuade our friends and neighbors so that we can persuade our leaders to stay the place that's the best place for highly skilled talent to be in the world and be as user friendly as we can be because we're competing in a globe where other countries are going to be doing it better if we don't. And um, so anyway, I just, would call us all to that call to action. Let's not just get off the WebEx and go on with our 4th of July weekend and have hot dogs and hamburgers and enjoy ourselves. But let's be thinking about what we're gonna do in big major ways to not only win this debate in the coming months, but to win it over the coming years. And I thank you all. Uh, everybody enjoy the rest of your 4th of July weekend.